This summer we've been studying spiritual warfare and the armor of God is detailed in Ephesians chapter number six. However, along the way I've received some feedback from a few who've asked if I would address the dramatic, the sensational, the paranormal demonic activity that manifests itself in unexplainable phenomenon. Pastor, they asked, what about demon possession and exorcism? What about occult practices of curses and spells and performing supernatural feats? I was even asked, what about UFO sightings? Could they be demonic activity? Perhaps, but for the most part, Satan disguises himself as an angel of lights. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 tells us, and for the most part, he portrays himself and presents his activity as something attractive. I cite Satan's temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. I cite Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness there. And Satan can deceive us and Satan can destroy us through the enticements of this world and the appetites of our flesh long before he needs to do anything dark and dramatic. On the other hand, he does work in dark and dramatic ways as is illustrated for us in Mark chapter number five by the demonic possession of the man of Gadara. Mark chapter five is where I'll ask you to go this morning. It was at the end of Mark chapter four that Jesus and his disciples were on the Sea of Galilee when a great storm came up upon them. And the disciples were afraid They were fearing for their lives, so Jesus spoke to the storm and said, peace be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed his voice. Look at Mark chapter four, verse 41. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, the disciples there were eyewitnesses of Jesus' power over the elements of the natural world. It was very impressive, but no sooner did the disciples finish processing Jesus' miracle of calming the storm when he showed them another miracle now in Mark chapter 5, and more impressive than bringing peace to a raging storm, Jesus brought peace to a raging man, one who was demon-possessed one who was in bondage to the wicked one, Satan, and the disciples witnessed Jesus' power over the evil of the supernatural world. And Mark 5 records Jesus' account there with the demon-possessed man of Gadara in which he, he worked a miracle. I'm calling it, I'm calling it radical redemption from demon possession. Let's go to the Lord quickly in prayer, and then we'll study Mark chapter five. God in heaven above, thank you for the moments that we've just shared around the table. We thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation, the deliverance that we have in that gospel. I thank you, Lord, now for the account that's before us in Mark chapter five. I pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Give us understanding, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I prepared an outline, printed a set of notes for you to follow. I, I want to begin with this reality. Number one, Satan's ruin of a man. From the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Satan purposed to ruin man by sin. We know that Satan tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. And then she gave the fruit also to Adam to Eve, disobeying God's command so that through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. 
And Satan's ruin of a man was then evident in so many ways through the course of human history. There's crime and war and there's sickness and disease and wickedness and corruption and the whole earth groans and labors because of Satan's ruin. Beginning of course with the ruin of man. But notice some evidences of Satan's ruin of man here in this account of the man of Gadara. Look at Mark chapter five, verse one. Then they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among The tombs, simply put, this man lived among the tombs. That's the demoniac's dwelling. And when we think of a graveyard or a cemetery, we think of an organized field of headstones. We think of of a a cemetery as being nicely arranged and flowers marking the the graves. And it's a melancholy scene. If the sun is setting in the background, it's been the subject of many artists' paintings over the years. But this is not the picture in Mark chapter 5. But rather, in this day, tombs were caves that were cut into the the rock or into the mountainside there in the hills and it was very probable that this man was using one of those cave tombs for his shelter. This was the original caveman, if you will, and it was probable that he had been driven from his home because of his deranged state of being demon-possessed and he resorted to dwelling among the dead. But consider this, his physical dwelling place there among the dead was in character consistent with his spiritual condition. You see, this man was dead in his trespasses and sins. And this man of the Gadarenes, the man of Gadara, was was a dead man living among dead men. Of course, the consequence of the curse of sin in which death is spread to all men for all have sinned. This was a dead man walking, living, sheltering among dead men. And that's our condition as well. We are all dead in our sin because of Satan's ruin of man. Satan's ruin of man can also be seen in in the demoniac's disposition. His disposition, verse three again, he has his dwelling among the tombs, verse three, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. The demoniac's disposition, we could break it down like this. First, he could not be restrained. The chains were handcuffs and the the fetters or the shackles were for binding of the feet. And although this man had been bound hand and foot, he could not be restrained. And he exhibited superhuman strength like a wild man breaking these restraints. And again, consider the spiritual condition of this man and the parallel. Just as the demoniac could not be restrained by man, neither could man control the sinful flesh apart from Christ. Many people try to to tame the old man with physical restraints, but folks, it is impossible without the supernatural spirit of God to restrain your flesh by the flesh. In fact, there's nothing worse than trying to restrain the flesh by the flesh. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to produce the fruit of the spirit without the, the spirit. And Colossians 2 explains that even legalistic rules or boundaries, even religious regulations or, or restraints are ineffective against the flesh. I'll give you there on the screen Colossians 2. These things have an appearance of wisdom 
in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This week, I spent some time with a Christian brother discussing this very matter. And our conversation was this, that Satan's ruin of a man by sin can never be restrained or reversed by behavioral modification. And we think that if we had a bit of self-discipline, we could subdue the flesh. Or we think that if we had a human accountability partner, we could ultimately defeat the flesh. Or perhaps there was some other rule or fence or boundary or restraint that could conquer the flesh. There is nothing that will contain your sinful rage other than the Spirit of God giving you rest and peace. Which leads me directly to the second characteristic of the, the demoniac. He could not find rest. He could not be restrained. He could not find rest. You see it there in verse number five. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. Can you imagine the townspeople being awakened in the middle of the night to the blood-curdling screams of the demoniac? Since it was in a rocky area, mountain region, perhaps there was even an eerie echo that would shatter the nights. And not only the night, but also the daytime. Isaiah 57 says this, it says, the wicked are like a troubled sea who cannot rest. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But what is the promise for the Christian? Jesus promised, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Hebrews 4 says there remains for the people of God a rest. Psalm 4, verse 8, I will lie me down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Perhaps this morning you don't suffer from the violent destruction of overt sin, but you do experience the storm of anxiety and worry and fear day and night. You're internally awake with all of the churning in your hearts. What does Philippians 4 say? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, it's unexplainable, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The demoniac's disposition, he could not be restrained, he could not find rest, Third, he was not rational. He was not rational. You see it there at the end of verse number five. He's crying out and cutting himself with with stones. And I don't mean to belabor the obvious here, but I want to establish the condition of the demon-possessed man of Gadara. A, A rational person would not live among the tombs, among the dead. A rational person would not purposely and continually cut himself. And rational human thought is is one of self-preservation, not of not of self-mutilization, but this is in fact how he's behaving and he's cutting and hacking his body. It's, it's covered with scars, no doubt, and, but that in fact is the way it is for us spiritually. The nature of sin is self-destructive and it leaves scars. Folks, it was the Puritan author Thomas Brooks who once wrote, Satan promises the best, but he pays with the worst. 
Satan promises honor but pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure but pays with pain. He promises profit but pays, pays with loss. He promises life but pays with death. And I submit that Satan's ruin of a man can be seen here in the tragic condition of this demoniac. What a tragedy. But then third, Satan's ruin of a man is seen as in the demoniac's demonization in his demonization, look at verse number nine. Then he, that is Jesus, asked the man of Gadara, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. If you look down to verse 12, so all the demons begged Jesus there, and we'll look at that in a moment. But, but here's the point. This man is not his own. He is not in control. He is possessed by demons and a demonic spokesperson answered Jesus' inquiry and responded by calling himself legion. Now legion was a term to describe a a company of Roman soldiers upward of 6,000 warriors would make up a a legion. And most likely the, the, the name legion here isn't to describe a specific number of demons but rather to establish that there were many of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them. According to verse 13, Jesus sent, sent, sent the demons to possess 2,000 swine or pig. So, so perhaps we could assume that there are 2,000 demons here in this case. But consider this for a moment. Whether it is a single demon or whether it is 2,000 demons or 6,000 demons, the man is not controlled by himself. He is possessed by the indwelling of demons. At times, I've been asked if Christians, born-again believers, can be possessed by a demon or demons in the way that this man of Gadara was. And the answer is no. For this simple reason, Believers, born-again believers, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But while believers cannot be possessed by a demon, it is clear that believers can be oppressed by a demon. Ephesians 4 verse 27 says that there are times where we give place to the devil in our lives. There in Ephesians 4, when we don't put off the old man, when we don't put on the new man, or Christ, and in this we grieve the Holy Spirit and we quench the working of the Holy Spirit. In fact, a great talking point for you this week in your small groups on Wednesday evening, your home Bible fellowships, would be to discuss how and when we give place to the devil, Ephesians 4.27. And we allow him, give him opportunity or a foothold, depending on your English translation there, we give opportunity or a foothold, we give place to the devil in our lives. Discuss how Satan oppresses the believer. And sometimes it's our own fault because we've opened the door and we've invited him to oppress us. Look at what happens in Mark 5, verse number, let's back up to verse number six. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him and cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion for we are are many. What we have here in these verses, number two, is Christ's rebuke of the demons. And folks, it doesn't matter if there's one demon or a million demons, Jesus Christ is God and there's no greater power in heaven or earth than God. And so because of that, the demons recognize Christ's position. Christ's position, letter A there, so, so follow what's happening here in verses six through nine. 
The human man of Gadara runs and worships Christ, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, it was the man of Gadara, but no, it was the unseen demons that controlled him so that when Jesus addressed the man of Gadara in verse 8, it was the demons who answered, speaking and naming themselves as, as legion. So understand that in this case, it is the demons who are coming and worshiping Christ. You see, demons recognize who Jesus is. Demons are compelled to worship Jesus for who he is. Now, are they saved? No. In no way are they saved. But let me tell you something. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The demons that possessed the man of Gadara were compelled to worship Jesus Christ in that moment. I love that. Because they recognized his position. This is God, the very God. After they recognized who Jesus was, secondly, they realized Christ's power. His power. There, in verse number seven, they they say, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And the idea there behind the word implore, maybe adjure in your Bible, it's that of placing someone under oath and they're begging Jesus to give them his solemn word that he would not send them into torment before their time. Matthew 25, 41 explains the everlasting fire, the lake of fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. So they're negotiating with with God, understanding his power. Look at verse number 10. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 swine and the herd ran violently down the the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, this is curious to us. Why is it that the unclean spirits requested to be sent into the pigs or swine? They were seeking some embodiment If Jesus was going to cast them out of the man of Gadara, they needed to occupy or embody some other being, the swine there. Why did Jesus send the swine, the pigs, into the water? And and if you'll allow me some liberty here, uh, this is not an interpretation, this is speculation, but some speculation, sanctified speculation. I believe that the unclean spirits The demons here in this case had every intention of embodying the pigs, the swine, and driving them into the wilderness, a dry place. Instead, Jesus drove them into the water, a wet place. Now here's my speculation. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, He goes through dry places, literally waterless places, the New American Standard, seeking rest and finds none. In the Bible, dryness represents one who is void of the Spirit of God. Dry places are are a type of spiritless people. David said, the rebellious dwell in a dry land. On the other hand, the Bible consistently uses water as a type, as a picture, a a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And for some reason, in some way, there is powerful symbolism here happening when Jesus commands the unclean spirits 
to be carried into the water where they are defeated. Fascinating to consider and explore here, but Christ's power. But then finally, this morning, as a point of application and ultimate conclusion, number three, Christ's redemption of man. Christ's redemption of man. And this is the good news. So verse 14, so those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind and they were afraid. You see, the former demoniac was completely changed, completely changed. So folks, this morning I would ask us, what was it that changed this man's life? And at at first we would say, well, it was the exorcism, of course, right? Jesus cast the legion of demons out of this man. Once the demons were cast out, the man was sitting, he was clothed in his right mind. That's what everyone needs to cast the demons out of their lives. At this point, it's common for us to think that exorcism is the solution. If we can defeat the demons in a man's life, for example, the demon of addiction, or the demon of anger, if we can just exercise or or cast out those demons and all be well, and for that reason there are those that would seek to practice exorcism and the casting out of demons as Jesus did here or in Matthew 17 when he cast a demon out of a a boy. If If we have enough faith and we use the right words, we can defeat demons and send them on their way. But I would contend, and this is an interpretive key for this entire Account, I would contend that for the demoniac of Gadara, it wasn't just the casting out of the demons, but it was the conversion of the man to Jesus Christ. Do you understand the difference there? It wasn't just the exorcism of the demons, the casting out of the demons, but the conversion of the man to Jesus Christ. For the departure of demons isn't your redemption. Rather, it's the indwelling Jesus Christ that is your redemption. And so the presence of Christ and the conversion of the man, if and when you think that you are encountering a demonic situation, I would counsel you not to try and rebuke the demon. Not and try to command and cast out the demon, but rather speak the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. That is the ultimate power and that is the ultimate only redemption of man. This past week, one of our supported missionaries to the Jews in New York City, Craig Hartman, perhaps you are on his email list. It's been a number of years since he's been here, but he wrote this in his prayer letter just this, uh, this past week. He says, God continues to give us opportunities to share the gospel in areas where we never thought it would be possible. The work has not been easy, and as one would expect, there has been opposition from the devil. As the months have gone by, I've spent quite a bit of time in Mark 5, the account of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man. I'm encouraged that he went to great lengths to meet this pagan Gentile, and I'm reminded that it's worth going through storms and opposition to reach souls because this is exactly what Jesus did. He says, in fact, Jesus did that for me. When I was at enmity with him, he sent his son to die for me. He pursued a relationship with me. This truth is a constant reminder and encouragement to us as we go into tough places to reach souls. Jesus loves the lost and wants them to be reached. 
And so we pierce the darkness with the light of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is when change happens. It's that old gospel hymn, perhaps some of you know, that what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus cast all the demons out of me. No, since Jesus came into my heart, the indwelling life of Christ, and it's the gospel that changes a man. So then, what if there is no change? Can you be certain of conversion? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so when Jesus Christ indwells a believer, there's a change that takes place, as in the case here, the man of of Gadara. An illustration, uh, God used the powerful preaching of George Whitfield to reach and save thousands, along with Jonathan Edwards, the the great preachers of the 18th century. Um, George Whitfield is now called the lightning rod of the great awakening. And, And he says this, I've copied it for you there in the back of your notes. There are so many stony ground hearers who receive the word with joy that I have determined to suspend my judgment till I know the tree by its fruits. Do you think any farmer would have a crop of corn next year unless he plowed now? You may well as expect a crop of corn on unplowed ground as a crop of grace until the soul is convinced of its being undone without a savior. Because their stony ground is not plowed up. They have no conviction of the law. They fall away. That makes me so cautious now, which I was not 30 years ago, of dubbing converts too soon, of of declaring one to have been born again, to be saved, to be converted, to be changed. Now I wait a little and see if people bring forth fruit. For there are so many blossoms which March winds blow away that I cannot believe they are converts till I see fruit brought forth you see when one is truly born again and is converted from idols to serve the living God there is a change a substantive change fruit that remains so this morning I I would ask you not are you demon possessed I would ask have you been changed by the indwelling Christ because of faith in him You say, well, pastor, I I, I wasn't that bad before I was saved. Yes, you were, like the man of Gadara. Let's finish. Look at verse 16. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine, and they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They were afraid of the power of Jesus. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might be with them. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. What can we say here? Letter B. The redemption of a man is he becomes a witness for Christ. Jesus didn't tell the the demoniac of Gadara to go home and become a great orator, but to simply give testimony to what Jesus had done in his life. Folks, perhaps we don't do the same because we aren't convinced of what Jesus has done in our lives, but if there is radical redemption, then we have a story to tell. 
When there is radical redemption, a supernatural miracle in which we pass from death to life and we are changed by the power of Jesus Christ, we have a witness to share. And so the demon-possessed man goes as a witness of the gospel that changed his life. Folks, our burden this morning should not be a question of demon possession. Have we seen it? Have we experienced it? Do we know someone who currently is suffering in that same way? Rather, the gospel. Take them the gospel. Give them the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, for that's the radical redemption of a man's life. And there will be fruit, and there will be fruit that remains so that we can then rejoice in what Jesus has done. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this account. Lord, it's a a grave account, but it's a glorious account. I pray, Lord, that you would guard us, protect us, preserve us, your people, from the wicked one and his devices. We're so grateful that we don't need to fear possession for we are indwelt by Jesus Christ and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But Lord, at times we do give place to the devil and at times we surrender ground to him, allowing him opportunity, even a foothold, to work his destruction. I pray that you would give us deliverance. I pray, Lord, that we would demonstrate changed lives who can give testimony to what you have done for us. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.